take this moment to dismiss the kindergarten and second graders through the back doors. And you have your Bibles open to John chapter 14. And we'll be back and forth between 14 and 16. It's a daunting task to deliver a message on the Holy Spirit. As doing that uh, creates quite a few significant challenges. One is the, the challenge of the volume of information you could say about the Holy Spirit. I was humbled as I was reading through part of a sermon by the great preacher in England, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I was trying to gather some information from him and his sermon And then I realized it was the first sermon of 25 that he delivered on the Holy Spirit. He referenced in one of his sermons a book by John Owen, the great Puritan writer, who wrote a book called A Discourse Concerning the Holy Spirit. And I looked at that, and it was 650 pages long. So there's quite a bit of volume, and in one sermon you couldn't possibly get to all of it. Second challenge is there's quite a bit of variety, and when I mean when I say variety, I mean a, a spectrum of comfort. When I just stand up here and say we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, there's a wide spectrum of feelings or understanding or experiences that come out of people. You may be on the side of when it, when you hear the words Holy Spirit, when you think about the Holy Spirit, it, it just immediately floods you with sort of a, a warm, comfortable feeling because you can you can remember some experience that you had together with the Holy Spirit in some way. So you, you get you get energized by a sermon on the Holy Spirit. Some might fall into J.I. Packer's quote when he says this, the average Christian is in a complete fog as to what the work the Holy Spirit does. So you might hear the Holy Spirit and go, I'm in a fog. I don't really know what to think. Or perhaps you're in a group of people that you get a little nervous. You've been in some situation. Maybe it's a church. Maybe it's with a particular person. And they said they're full of the Holy Spirit. But something unusual happened at that event. And it was something you couldn't quite account for. And it made you nervous. And so you sort of ran sort of a boomerang effect to say, well, let's just stick to the text. I mean, the Holy Spirit thing, I'm not too sure about, but I I can read John 14 or John 16. And so all of us have some sort of we're on the spectrum in some way. So it's a challenge in that way. And my hope is to tackle some of these challenges by doing three things. One is to answer the question, who is the Holy Spirit? Secondly, to consider the primary role of the Holy Spirit. And third, and this will be next week's sermon, examine briefly the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So we want to ask the question, who is the Holy Spirit? We want to talk about his primary role today, and then next week we'll talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Before I begin, I think it's helpful to outline two basic biblical principles of of interpretation. And there are several key ones, but these two have a pretty big effect in terms of as we look at our text today and and we tackle the question of the Holy Spirit. Number one, one biblical principle of interpretation of the Bible is this. The will of God for the people of God is the word of God. The will of God for the people of God is the word of God. In other words, what we seek for ourselves and what we teach to others must be governed by the scriptures rather than our experience. Uh, 
Our experience can never be the standard of truth. The standard of truth always has to be the word of God. And we have to we have to modulate or understand or look at our experience in relationship to the word. And let me give you an example of how I've heard this play out. I was once in a meeting with a very well-meaning, godly Christian man. And uh, at some point in this discussion, he made this statement. I won't allow anyone to tell me my experience isn't invalid. I won't allow anyone to tell me my experience is invalid. Now, I'm not saying his experience was invalid. But when I heard it, it just made me a little nervous. And he might not have been saying this, but it sort of felt like what he was saying is, I've had this experience, I know it's true, and that's the standard by which I measure other things. And I would say, you may have had the experience, and it may have been true, but that's not the truth for every other situation. It's not the truth for me. And you've got to at least say, Maybe if the word says something different in my experience, I've got to allow the word to be the standard rather than my personal experience. Number two, uh, in terms of biblical interpretation principles. When you read the Bible, especially when you're reading the narrative portions of the Bible. In other words, you're just reading a story in the Bible, which let's just say the whole book of Acts is primarily just one long story of the beginning of the church to uh, the end of Acts, Acts is Acts 28 and Paul is in Rome. You have to ask yourself this question. Is what I'm reading prescriptive or descriptive? When I'm reading something, is it prescribing something or is it describing something? Maybe another way to say it, is it teaching you what you should do or is it telling me what actually happened? So when you go to the text, you want to ask that question, is this just telling me something that happened in Acts or is this actually teaching me something that I should be doing? And let me see if I can uh, maybe clear this up with an example. In Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 4, there's some descriptions of the early church. And these are some verses contained in those chapters. It says this, all the believers were together. This is the early church, this early church. They were together and they had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods, and they gave to anyone as he or she had need. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of his possessions as his own, but they shared everything they had. So when you read that, is that describing what happened in the early church? Or is that prescribing that's the way every church should operate? See, it makes a pretty big difference, does it not? See, because some churches might say, no, that's that's prescribing. In other words, every believer should come into a church and say, I, I don't own any private property anymore. I'm giving it to the church for the equal distribution of everyone in the church. Now, I think most of us here would feel a little uncomfortable about that. And the way you would get around it, not in a negative way, is you'd say, well, that's just describing what happened in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. It's not prescribing that every church must 
be like that. So when you come to the text, you have to ask yourself that kind of question. And, and you ask yourself that question, whether you realize it or not, as you read through the Bible, you try to discern, is this just describing an event or is this some teaching that God's saying, no, you need to import this into your life or you need to import this into your church. John Stott says this, we must derive our standards of belief and behavior from the teaching parts of the New Testament rather than from the practices or experiences it portrays. It doesn't mean that our experiences or practice won't be the same or at least similar. It just means that when we talk about a teaching that everyone's going to have to hold on to, we're going to talk about the teaching parts of the Bible rather than just the experiential parts. So number one, my first question is who or what is the Holy Spirit? In the King James, when it refers to the Holy Spirit, it says Holy Ghost. So when you think of ghost, is that the right picture? In the Gospels, when Jesus is uh, baptized, you remember the Holy Spirit descends. And what does it descend like? What did it look like? Look like a dove. So is that sort of the picture I'm supposed to have? A, a ghostly-like dove? Is that sort of how I'm supposed to think about it or is the holy spirit sort of more like a force like star wars it's like an electric charge something that you sort of use or wield or something it's like a power in some way uh, i remember watching on television a, a gentleman who who he believed he had the the power of the holy spirit and he was wielding it like a force and this guy was in this uh, great crowd of people and he was standing here and he could see the Holy Spirit coming from him. Of course, we couldn't see it. And he ducked as the Holy Spirit went over his head. And the poor guy behind him didn't see the Holy Spirit coming. And he fell down on the stage. So is that the Holy Spirit? Is that the picture? Is it a force? Is it a power? And you sort of just wield it in some way. Is it a ghost? Is it a, a dove? Or is it like... The hymn, the words, holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons. See, the hymn writer got it right. It's a person. It's not a force. It's not a ghost. It's not a dove. It's a, it's a person. It's the person that's part of the Trinity. So let's take a look just briefly at the person of the Holy Spirit. It's it's personal and we know that because of first second Corinthians thirteen, it says that you can have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. You can have fellowship with a power or a force. Ephesians four tells us that you can grieve the Holy Spirit. John sixteen here tells us Jesus and, and in these passages John Jesus uses the personal pronoun he Twelve times to refer to the Holy Spirit. He will do something. He is coming. And so uh, when Jesus says in John 14, there's another helper like me, it's going to be like me, not a force. It's going to be a person that is going to come. And, you know, in Matthew 28, in the in the uh, Great Commission, it, Jesus says, go, therefore, into all the worlds and you're going to make disciples. Remember, baptizing them in the name of. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the word name there in the Greek is someone who can be known. 
So you're, you're baptizing this person in the name of or someone who can be known. You're going to know God the Father. You're going to know Jesus the Son. And you're going to know the power. No, you're not going to know the power. You're going to know the person of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is a, a person and not a power. And this person is also divine. We said it in the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Nicene Creed. It says this. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit is worshipped and glorified. So it's not just a person. It's a divine person. That comes to us. The Holy Spirit has these same attributes of God. Hebrews 9, the Holy Spirit is eternal. Psalm 139, the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. Matthew 28, he has equality with God the Father and God the Son. You might remember this very odd event that happened in Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira. This couple owned some private property and they were going to sell the private property and they were going to give it to the church for the distribution, just as we said in Acts chapter two and Acts chapter four and Ananias and Sapphira, they sold their property and they pretended to give it all to the church. But in reality, they only got gave part to the church. And I don't think they actually had to sell it or they could have sold it and just given half. I don't think that mattered. What the problem was, was that they lied. They said they sold it and they gave it all to the church. But what they did is they only gave half. But they were telling everybody we gave the whole amount. And so they come before Peter. And Peter says this. How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? And you have kept for yourself part of the money you received for the land. What made you think you of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to. And you would anticipate the Holy Spirit. So you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And then he comes back around and says, you haven't lied to just men. You've lied to. And he says, God. So there's a clear equality when when Peter's saying Holy Spirit and Holy. And he's saying, God, those things are the same. And you know, if you've read the story and you should, Acts chapter five, Ananias and Sapphira die on the spot. See, here's another place when you get to there, you have to ask yourself, is that describing something or is it prescribing something? Every time you come into the church and lie, what happens to you? See, if it's prescribing something, that's very different than describing something, is it not? You make those calculations all the time, and you just have to understand that's what's happening here. And I would say that's describing something. Well, the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a divine person, somebody in which you have a relationship with. Question number two, what are the primary, what's the primary role or roles of the Holy Spirit? Before I tackle that, I want to try to just dip my toe in a deep pool and it'll probably just creates a disturbance and you'll have more questions than I've answered. <laughs> uh, but I just want to sort of dip my toe and then really get back to my main point, which is what's the primary role. But I, I want to ask this question in John chapter 14, verse 16 and John chapter 16, verse 13 says this. When God gives the spirit or when the spirit comes. 
So Jesus is saying God's going to give the spirit or he's telling the disciples, well, when the spirit comes, my question is, when you read that, are you supposed to think that the Holy Spirit's like on the bench and at some point he's going to be like called into the play, like where he's sort of sitting on the bench and then God's going to call the Holy Spirit in or Jesus is going to go to God and then he's going to sit down and say, Holy Spirit, now it's your turn. Is that sort of how we're supposed to think about that? And I would say, well, no, not really, because when you look at the Old Testament, you definitely see the activity of the Holy Spirit. One, you see it in creation in Genesis chapter one. The the spirit of God is what's hovering over uh, this chaos of the world before it's created. And there are many other places, but you probably would be somewhat familiar with Psalm 51. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and then what take not thy holy spirit from me so we we definitely see the activity of the holy spirit but the the way i pictured it and i'm not sure this is the most accurate illustration but i pictured it like a a a leaky dam that in the old testament you see sort of the the water or the the flood waters of the holy spirit sort of leaking out But in the New Testament, the dam busts wide open. And so, yes, you see the Holy Spirit in different ways, but it's at least muted. It's less visible in the Old Testament. But Jesus is saying, I think to his disciples in both of these passages, and I think the Old Testament prophets are saying the same thing, is that there will be a day that the dam is going to bust wide open. And the Holy Spirit is going to be like a flood, and it's going to get deeper and deeper and deeper as it runs out. I think that's the picture that... Jesus has in mind and we know the Holy Spirit breaks open because in Acts chapter 2 remember Jesus says you need to go and wait for the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit descends and you remember how the Holy Spirit descends in a flame and it's like tongues of fire it's it's leaking out so to speak on every one of these disciples well if you're a, a Jewish Old Testament understander now, let me say, that's not good. If you're a Jewish person who understands the Old Testament, sorry. It, when you hear God comes down like a flame or a fire, what are you supposed to think of? You're supposed to think back to when Solomon built the temple and God came down. And what did he come down at? like? A great flame or a great fire. And he's coming down to dwell in his temple. Now in the New Testament, he's coming down in the same way. But was it, what is he inhabiting? Not a building. Living stones. And see, the dam just begins to break open. Now, now we're not coming down into one particular location. We're coming down into these 12 people. And these 12 people go out and they spread the gospel out. And what happens is 3,000 people get touched by the Holy Spirit. And so now we have in the beginning of Acts this Jewish group of people who are all being filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's not done because, you know, in Acts chapter 9, they go out to this group called Samaria and the Holy Spirit falls out on those people. And then we know that later on in Acts, it goes out to the Gentile people. See, the, the dam is broken open. And the Holy Spirit now is flooding out and is going to go around the world. It's not going to be located in a particular location. It's going to fall on people who trust in Christ as their Savior. So if you 
When you read through the book of Acts, what you're intended to come away with, or at least one of the things you're intended to come away with is, no matter your depravity, it doesn't matter how depraved you are. No matter your gender, no matter your social status, no matter your nationality, no matter your ethnicity. See, the Holy Spirit has busted open the dam, and now He is spilling out over all of these people. It's an incredible thing. If you repent, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. There, there's no way to become this new creation. There's, there's no way to be called a son or daughter of God without receiving the Holy Spirit. Which means that salvation isn't a two-tiered experience. You don't get saved and then you get filled with the Holy Spirit. There's no way to get saved without being filled with the Holy Spirit. But in some circles, it becomes two-tiered. Well, you got saved and you sort of got one foot in the door, but you need this other event to happen. You need to be baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit. And I would say when you read the Bible... Really, there's no way, I think, to get to that clearly. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit can't manifest himself in greater ways throughout your life, but it's not some secondary thing that something has to happen in order for you to receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, let me move on there. That's my toe in the deep pool, and I want to move on to now the primary role, roles of the Holy Spirit. When you come to John chapter 14... Jesus is in the upper room, and he's with his disciples, and the air is heavy. Jesus has been talking about, hey, I'm going to go to a place, and you know what? You can't come. What do you, what do you mean? Where, where could you possibly go when we, we couldn't be there? So there's this heaviness, and then at the very end of chapter 13, he turns to Peter and says, Peter, it won't be long you're going to deny me. And so when you get to chapter 14, there's this heaviness in the room. And Jesus says this in chapter 14, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. See, he understood the, the, the pastoral situation. And the primary reason Jesus gives for our hearts not being troubled or the disciples' hearts not being troubled is chapter 16, verse 7. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit won't come. And I know the disciples heard that, but I'm just guessing they didn't feel like that was going to be an advantage. Okay, yeah, but you're going away. I mean, I don't, I'm not too sure about what it is you're sending and how that's going to operate. It just doesn't seem like an advantage. It seems like much more an advantage if you were standing here with me. And my guess is if... If you could have left church today and gone home and seen your neighbor or friend or called your mom or dad or whatever. And you said, well, I came to Christ Community Church and Jesus himself was here. Or I got in contact with the Holy Spirit. You probably would prefer to see Jesus, would you not? What did he look like? What color were his eyes? How tall was it? I mean, you'd have all these kind of questions. And it would seem like you had an advantage. And, and every, anyone you called would say, well, you had an advantage because I got stuck with the Holy Spirit in my church. 
And I understand that we all understand that feeling that somehow there's that, that tactile, I'm holding his hand kind of response. But Jesus says, no, there's something that's advantageous to the Holy Spirit coming that can't happen or won't happen as long as I'm here. And I'm asking myself, what is that advantage? Chapter 14, verse 16, he calls the Holy Spirit another helper. He's another helper. Well, who's the first helper? Jesus is the first helper. So somebody else like Jesus is coming. He's a helper. He's a counselor. He's an advocate. And the word in the Greek means somebody that's called to my side. So the Holy Spirit now is going to always stay at your side. See, one of the advantages of the Holy Spirit is all of us. Let's say there's 300 people of us here today. We can all leave and you can get in your car and you can have the Holy Spirit with you. But if Jesus were here, he would only go home in my car. Well, maybe your car. I don't know. But I mean, he could only go home in one car. But see, there's a huge advantage because now Jesus is saying, hey, the, the dam is the dam is bursting open. And we're not talking about coming to one place in Jerusalem to meet God. We're talking about God, the Holy Spirit, moving out all the way around the world. And he can be with everyone around the world at the same time. That's a that's a huge advantage. He's going to stay by our side so he can be at your side, whether you live in Jerusalem or you live in Wilmington. And you get that sense of of comfort that Jesus is trying to give in verse 18 of chapter 14. He says I'm, he's looking. Imagine he's looking at this table, 12 men. He's looking at him saying, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. I'm not going away in somewhere where you can't find me or we can't be together. I'm going to I'm going to stay with you. And I'm going to stay with you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's look at chapter 14, verse 26, where Jesus says this. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And he's going to bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then let's look over to chapter 16, verse 12, where Jesus says this. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you things that are to come and he will glorify me. For he will take what is mine. He's going to take my words and he's going to then declare them to you. So one of the primary, if not the primary role of the Holy Spirit, not just to be at our sides, but is to teach us the things that Christ has said. See, and this is so important. I want you to hear this carefully. The Holy Spirit is not going to create any new doctrine or new teaching. The Holy Spirit doesn't speak any new truth into a person or a prophet. The Holy Spirit reveals or illuminates or impresses upon the hearts of believers what's already been said by Christ. The Holy Spirit's job is to take what's been said in the scriptures and to to help you see something you haven't been able to see yet that's clearly there in the in the scriptures. And when you see it, it's going to point to Jesus. 
And you see that a little example of that. Remember when the disciples are leaving Jerusalem after Jesus has died and this third person comes up and walks alongside and they don't know it's Jesus and they're having this conversation and Jesus teaches them everything from the scriptures about himself. See, Jesus could have done any miraculous thing. Anything could have happened at this particular point. But what he's saying is, I want you to see what's already in the scriptures. And when you see those things, what are you going to see? You're going to see me. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. It opens your eyes to things that you haven't seen before that are already there. And one reason that's so important is because it's easy for everyone to get caught up into sort of chasing after spiritual experiences. You ever watch the storm chasers on the Weather Channel? These guys are really interesting. <laughs> and, you know, they find a tornado and they go get right next to it. You know, they're like just always trying to find some crazy storm and so they can see what happens and they can experience it. And we can kind of become like spiritual storm chasers. Oh, somebody has this great experience over there and we rush over there. Or I saw something happen dramatically over here, so we rush over here and we're, we're chasing after these experiences. And I've known people who would fly across the country or out of the country looking for some anointing or blessing of the Holy Spirit. And it feels like to me when that happens, and this may not be what they're saying, but it just feels like I'm chasing after a power. I'm a plug and I've got to go find an outlet. And apparently something's happening over here and I want to go plug myself into it. That's how it comes across. And so in the upper room, Jesus is clearly informing us the role of the Holy Spirit is to open our eyes to the truth of what's already written in the scriptures. And so that's where we find the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. So what needs to be chased after is the word of God. All your energy should be chasing after the word of God. And then the Holy Spirit illuminates the word of God in some way. And you have a, an experience that you, you're, you grew in your understanding. You grew in your capacity to receive what God has already laid down. So if you ever hear somebody who has a special anointing, or they say they have a special anointing, and I would look for two traits is the person helping you understand what the scriptures already say about Jesus? And does the person give glory to Jesus? See, are they pointing to the word and then they give glory to the word? Or are they pointing to an experience and the glory tends to come back towards the presenter? The Holy Spirit's a... A divine person. It's an incredible advantage that he's always with us. He, his primary role is to open our eyes to the scriptures. And let me just close with this. This primary truth that the Holy Spirit is continuing to teach you and I. And this truth that gets sweeter as you get older. And this truth that gets sweeter when you become more and more understanding of your own sinfulness. And it's in verse 19 of chapter 14. Because I live, you also will live. The older you get, the more sinful you realize you are. 
the truth that the Holy Spirit bears down on those last days is because I'm alive, you too will be alive. Think about Jesus saying that to these 12 men. He's already said, hey, you guys are going to run away from me. And you already know that they're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And because of their belief, they're all going to be killed because of their belief. So he's looking at these men who are going to run away and then be killed for their belief. And he's looking at them and saying, because I live, you will live. And so I think if, if, you, if you're here this morning and you feel forgotten or orphaned, if you've gone out on the mission field and you feel like you've been thrown out or thrown down, and you feel like you've sort of just been left like a piece of debris on life's highway, if you've had some physical or emotional or, or mental limitation and you wonder, am I valuable anymore? If your sin is so grotesque that you, you can't sleep and when you wake it's like a, a heavy chain around your conscience. If by your words or actions you have fled away from knowing Jesus and you've actually denied him, if, if you've wandered away from the faith, if you're eating with pigs, then, then what you need to be reminded by the Holy Spirit of truth today is that because Jesus lives, you will live. You will live. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who know Jesus Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, I'm convinced that not life or death or angels or principalities or power, nothing can separate me from the love of God. Amen? That's the truth that the Holy Spirit bears down on your soul. So as you find yourself in these deep, dark places, either being persecuted from your faith or seeing your own weaknesses, you know that Jesus lives and he's looking at you and saying, no matter what happens in this situation, because I'm alive, you are going to be alive. You will be alive. I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. When I was 23, and it was August, and this was now 27 years ago, so almost exactly 27 years ago, I had been watching my mother die of cancer. And many of you are old enough to have watched something like this to happen to a parent or a spouse or a friend. And it's just a tough situation because you go to the hospital and they're hooked up on things, but there's really nothing more that can be done. So you sit there and you don't, they're not really conscious and you sit there. And of course, if it's your mother or your father or spouse, there's all this increased emotion at this point. And, and I'm sitting there in the hospital room in Forsyth County Hospital in Winston-Salem. And I'm, I'm just sitting there feeling like, what, you know, what's going on? I have a thousand emotions, you know, all at one time. Anger and resentment and bitterness and sorrow and sadness. And then I remember something that was joyful, but they're all like stirring the pot. And my mind is just like a, a hurricane of ideas. And I'm sitting there just with her. Hear a little knock on the door. And an old preacher comes in. 85, got the thick glasses. You know, his eyes look five times the size of their normal size. Julian Lake. 
he was a friend of a friend and he happened to know my mom and kind of shuffles in as an old man and he's a preacher. He's got this deep voice. I don't remember how long he was there. I can't recall anything that he said. I don't remember that we had a conversation. But I remember that he grabbed my hand and he grabbed my mother's hand. And he looked down at his Bible and he opened it up and it says, The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. He'll bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let them not be afraid. You see what he did? It wasn't anything new. It was right at the tip of the spear of this life into the next. He said, here's a truth you can hang on to that will take you from this doorway through to the next. Didn't heal my mother. Didn't cause my pain to go away. It caused my perspective to change. Because of truth. Now maybe you're in a position that you just need somebody to pray truth into your life. Just I'm just confused. My life feels like a hurricane. My mind feels like a hurricane. There'll be an elder and myself up here after the service to pray for you if that would be an encouragement. Let's pray together. Lord, only you know that we, in just studying these few words from John 14 and 16 and trying to talk about the Holy Spirit for 30 minutes, how shallow our entry was this morning. But you are able by your power to to come into the minds and hearts of every person here. And every person here has the chance to leave with the Holy Spirit. So I pray for those who might be wrestling with a decision like that, that you would give clarity and courage. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are here that their lives in some way feel chaotic or they feel like they're not useful or they're forgotten or they're, they sit on life's uh, side not being used and not being accessed in any meaningful way. I I don't know how they may feel, but you, by your Holy Spirit, can come in and give them truth at this particular point in your life. And I ask you to do that now. We're, We're all aware of people outside of these walls who need your truth. And would you take this prayer, would you take our offerings, would you take all of our collective talent and use them for your purposes, so the Holy Spirit would continue to flood our city. In Jesus' name, amen.